0: You've tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 minutes with Kevin Scott. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Dave Robison. And I'm Terry Mixon. And you've tuned in to a special episode of the Roundtable Podcast. Twenty minutes with
1: twenty minutes with is an opportunity to go ahead and put on our pith helmets. And delve into the wild jungles of creativity, and explore our craft in the never-ending quest to improve our own.
0: <laughs> I say, sir, so. pith yes. What we'll have tea. In what? what? <laughs> Terry Mixon, one of the many awesome co-hosts of the Dead Robot Society, and and author of the Empire of Bones and Veil of Shadows and more fabulosity to come, sir. Thank you so much for for taking time from what I know is your busy schedule to co-pilot this episode with me, man. I'm looking forward to this.
1: It's my pleasure to be here. Anytime that I can sit down with you is is an opportunity to hear that silky golden voice. And it just, <laughs>
0: it gets me recharged to go out and create more. <laughs> you are a kind and generous soul, sir. Well, then let's, let's dive into the rechargement. Let, let's, let's, let's find some literary gold out there. Um, Terry, I want to introduce you to our guest host for this episode of 20 Minutes With. May I do that? Please, please, by all means. Oh, you're a gentleman, sir. Uh, friends, our guest host for this episode is really, for me, the the very embodiment of contrasts and incongruities. He's he's like a, a literary disco ball, flashing brightly in every direction, casting the light of his exceptional stories around the dance floor of genre fiction. And that's the first time I've ever tried it out that metaphor. Disco, really? I'm you know, I'm a child of the 80s, man. It's it's how I rolled. But but listen to this. You're going to you're going to by the time we're done, you might you might actually agree with me. Now, he lives in the UK near Bristol, and while we've been honored to have several uh, astonishing creators from England join us on the round table, including Anne Lyle, Adam Christopher, Lee Harris, Emma Newman, Colin Barnes, and the incomparable Alistair Stewart, I raise this point because a Amid the vast scope and breadth of our guest host's ever-growing canon of work, you're going to find references to properties that, while enormously popular and resonant to our UK listeners, might be lost on our American ones. Like The Beano, for example. Now, this is a children's comic that has been running in the UK since 1938. Now, our guest host, (laughs) pretty much every kid in England, grew up reading these comics And now he writes them. And this is such an enormous achievement that he's been quoted to observe that if I could go back in time to my eight-year-old self and tell him I was writing Roger the Dodger and Banana Man for the Beano, I suspect my head would explode. And, dear friends, the fact that our guest host should make a time travel reference in that quote is not without significance, but we'll get to that later. For now, I I just want to affirm that contrasts of culture are just the tip Of the iceberg of this remarkable individual. Now, he started writing in primary school around the age of eight or so. His first series of stories was about a brave band of adventurers battling their nemesis, a robotic hen called Psycho Chicken. And through the course of the stories, that pernicious poultry transformed from robot to zombie to vampire to were-chicken. And even in his youth, our guest host's stories embraced a diverse thematic spectrum. Now, he was also a fan of spooky ghost stories. In fact, his grandparents used to live in a flat in an old Gothic house, and And our our guest guest host would gather as many books of ghost stories as he could carry and read them in the middle of the night in this fantastically spooky building. Now, with those adventurous and speculative influences already growing in his heart, it should come as no surprise that our guest host was a dedicated fan of Doctor Who. Uh, now, this was during Tom Baker's stint as the fourth doctor, and it bears mentioning that our guest host was more terrified of Baker than of the Daleks or any of the other monsters. In fact, he, he made a papier-mâché doll of the good doctor in school, and a subconscious effort To objectify his fear, no doubt And and one day it fell into a bucket of water And regenerated Into a pulpy mush (laughs) Now, I won't postulate about the psychological impact on that event But I can only assume it was very cathartic for him But the important thing is Is that it was Doctor Who Who introduced our guest host To an idea that would profoundly define His creative endeavors in the years to come Tie-in fiction It was 1982 and the last season of the show had concluded and it would be an eternity before the new season would fire up again, at least from the perspective of a young boy. But one wet Saturday afternoon while browsing the shelves of W.H. Smith with his parents, he saw it. A book titled Doctor Who and the Ark in Space by Ian Martyr. His allowance was quickly spent and our guest host discovered that stories can persist and continue beyond the scope of a television season. Now, time passes, and he begins writing professionally in 1995 when he joins Future Publishing, writing freelance reviews for various magazines. He becomes a journalist and a magazine editor, and in 2000, he publishes his first piece of fiction, a story called Christmas Spirit, co-written with longtime friend Mark Wright. Now, this began a long legacy of fiction produced by this potent literary duo, including several Doctor Who audio productions, including Project Lazarus and Project Twilight, and several stories in the Doctor Who short trip anthologies, as well as stories and scripts for Judge Dredd, the Highlander series, and Iris Wild Time. Now, these credentials led to him being invited to write the first Blake Seven novel in over 35 years in a month and a half. (laughs) <laughs> the result of that mad scramble led to The Forgotten, which in turn led to the epic Liberator Chronicles and the Armageddon Storm. Now, he's written for Warhammer 40K's Black Library, including Doom Flight and Plague Harvest. And in 2007, he launched a magazine on country living called Country File. What? Yes, it's true. He even wrote a few books on the best walks in Great Britain. Now, he also, see, we're talking diversity here. We're getting very very much across the board. The disco ball is spitting. He also has an alter ego, a pseudonym, as it were, in the form of a wise old owl named Ankh Beekman. Now This came about in 2011, the Skylanders game had just been released, and Puffin Books, the children's imprint of Penguin Books, approached our guest host to write a chapter book as a tie-in. Now The game and the book exploded in fame and success, which led to five more chapter books, a quiz book, a game guide to the sequel, two annuals, and much more to come. Now, one of the gratifying rewards of this particular project was that the books were exciting children who hardly ever pick up a book. Now, no doubt this led to him becoming a patron of reading. Now, no, he is not a saint that I'm aware of. Uh, But but this this patron of reading is a program in the UK where a children's author works with the kids in a particular school to increase their delight and interest in reading for pleasure. And honestly, I can't imagine a more suitable and inspiring selection for this illustrious post. And I swear there's so much more. He wrote Whoology, the first Doctor Who book to make the Sunday Times bestseller list. He's writing a five-issue Doctor Who miniseries of the Doctor for Titan Comics, and he'll be doing a Sherlock Holmes series for them as well. He's written audio productions for Paizo Publishing's Pathfinder series, starting with the Skinsaw Murders. His favorite book is A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. He's a cookbook-aholic. He ducked out of the bachelor party before his wedding to watch Doctor Who. His TARDIS would be an ice cream truck. He interviewed Simon Pegg and Nick Frost about their film Paul for Cinema World Cinemas and just this Christmas his daughter asked him Daddy are Daleks so angry because they're on the naughty list and won't be getting any presents so you know this household is is geek and nerd tacular dear friends please welcome to the big chair here at the round table our guest host for this episode of 20 minutes with Kevin Scott Kevin I cannot tell you how, first of all, how delighted I am that we finally made this happen and how excited I am to dig into our 20-ish minutes because there's a ton of questions I want to ask you. Thank you so much, sir.
2: You're welcome. And you know about Psycho Chicken which is the scariest
0: thing. (laughs) That's right. That's right. The, the minions did their work. We've dug deep. Now I, I got to ask, and I always do, but this in particular, were there any egregious errors or, or problems that I, I missed or overlapped or did weird in that background cabin?
2: Well, the only thing is that Onk Beekman isn't an owl. Onk Beekman is a penguin, which is very important oh. in the world of Skylanders. But, um, I'm, you know, I'll forgive you. Not for sure. <laughs> Onk, Onk <laughs> probably won't. He doesn't forgive many people at all. I,
0: I, I can see him being a very stubborn and hard-nosed, mm. hard-beaked individual. So uh, <laughs> I, I forget him. Very good. Kevin, I'm not gonna waste any more time. I'm gonna I'm gonna set the clock and let's let's get into this because I have so many questions for you. Okay. Um, we're gonna ignore the clock, of course, because that's just how we roll here. But let's let's dive into this. My first question, and this is kind of just a a, a quick one, is is a, a lot of your work initially seems to have been uh, 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 there. There seems to have been a very quick transition between. Uh, prose, uh, novels, books, and what have you, and and the audio scripts that you you began producing. How did you make that transition? Was that a very natural thing for you? D- tell us about how you made that jump between literature and scripts.
2: I mean, actually, it was probably, um, it was only a couple of short stories, and then we moved into audio. This was um, Mark you mentioned earlier on and myself. Um, it was one of those moments when you were in the right place at the right time. Um, it was a time which should now seems crazy where doctor who wasn't successful and wasn't popular and in fact wasn't there it was off the telly um in the uk and a new series of radio um audio cds was coming out with the original cast and so mark and i were starting out writing together it was the beginning of our career um away from journalism and so we we just pitched for it we decided to go for it thinking that it would never happen it would never be something that we'd get a chance to because for us, it was, you know, a bit of the Holy Grail, to write Doctor Who, <laughs> completely Doctor Who geeks um, from, from, from being very small. So we pitched to it and actually we didn't get it, first of all, the, the plot line we put through, it, it vanished um, into a hole. What, what it was that we pitched a vampire Doctor Who story, unbeknown to us, so had seven other people. <laughs> um, and so the producer said, I'll pick the best one. And we didn't hear anything for about a year. And we thought, well, that's it. And then he came back out at the blue and said, actually, if you're happy to change a couple of things, there's something here we can wow. work on. So it was, it was, that was really our launch into it. And it was It was that moment of actually going, well, this will be our only chance. We'll write this one and that's it. We were very sneaky at the end and put a cliffhanger.
0: um, (laughs) There you go. Writerly tip number 216, end your story on a cliffhanger. (laughs) You know, um, we made sure there were some nice loose
2: ends. And that's another, I mean, I, I, I also quite like stories with loose ends anyway, because, you know, the world's not that um, neat and tidy and there were, there were always loose ends in every story in real life so why not in fiction sure. um, so we put a big cliffhanger at the end of, of Project Twilight which was the first one um, and people liked it and they wanted to know what happens, yay so um, <laughs> and them. that led into more and so audio is actually it, audio completely took over um, from the fiction side of, of writing and of course at this time it was my sideline, you know I was a magazine editor through and through and you know fiction was my sideline, mm-hmm. over time Sort of swap round to the point that fiction was my job. Um, and magazine editor was something I did every now and then. Um, and so and it, we sort of moved in and out of that, and now we sort of write um, away from each other and sometimes come together with projects, but we sort of now sort of span in the two worlds of audio and prose and right. comics, because comics and audio are actually very similar, um, for me anyway. Well, um,
0: that's, that's a question I wanted to ask you, is what, what do you see as the biggest difference in terms of storytelling between writing prose and writing a script, whether it's a, a comic script or an audio script?
2: Um, Obviously, with audio, the biggest thing is that you have to try and stop doing those dreadful moments in radio when you say, I'm just picking up this gun over here, (laughs) which I left (laughs) beside the vase. Um, And, you know, obviously, exactly. Yes. Oh, you're a handsome looking woman with red hair. Um, (laughs) Yeah. You, those, that's when you obviously think about audio, and it's something still that you know. first drafts, I do, and then I cringe when I read it back. You know, it's it's, t- it's building those worlds, which obviously in prose you can build a world, you can describe everything. When you're dealing with audio, and you're just dealing with a voice, and with a lot of work I do with sound effects and music, and an amazing sort of sound design team, you still have those moments when you have to try and get, how am I going to do this. Um, in an audio way. And I've been told a lot of my scripts that both on my own and that I write with Mark are very visual. We we think quite visually, which is why I think I enjoy comics so much. Um, But yeah, it's just like trying to sort of trying to make sure that you're getting the story and the world across without having those awful moments where you bludgeon someone with
0: detail. I would imagine it requires a lot of, of trust and faith in your reader or listener in this case. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, to, to, to fill in those blanks. Do you find it difficult to kind of let go of that control in t- as a storyteller? The interesting thing about
2: audio, um, especially the kind of audio work that I've done, is that that's actually the big difference. Because prose is, you you know, it's you and your editor and all those kind of things. But it's your, you know, you control that world when you are working an audio production. Um, There's obviously so many more people. The the audio work I do through Big Finish, there's obviously me writing the script, but then there's the script editor, the director, the producers, the actors, the sound designers, the composers. So you have to give up um, the story a bit to, to have all that, all those people, give them the chance to come in and, and take, their, take their own part of it. So it's um, it's a very much a team effort, I think, writing audio. So in some ways, it's a lot easier because you know that actually you're the first step in the production happening because they obviously need your script. But then after that, there's a long time. I mean, sometimes, you know, you can write a script and the production doesn't come out for a year or a year and a half because <laughs> it's taken, to, you know, getting all the actors together, but mixing it, getting the right composer on it or whatever. So, you know, you're the first first step in that, in that journey. And so um, I think, yeah, it's quite easy to, 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 to let it go a bit more when you're doing an audio because it, it, that's that kind of production.
1: Okay. Looking at the, the various things that you've done, you are all over the map. You've got your fingers in so many different pies mm. doing so many different things. Have you ever been checked for ADD? Yeah, <laughs> because you are everywhere.
2: I think it's just it's pure fear. That, um it's a, it's, a, it's the fear of a freelancer who um, gets up and works, you know, as a job. And so I find it very hard to say no. And also I get very excited about things, a very excitable. So I will say yes, far too much and then have to work out how I'm <laughs> going to do everything. And, you know, and who needs sleep? As the good doctor said, <laughs> sleep is for tortoises. So, you know, I, I'll just I'll just Eat. get on with it.
1: Do you find it difficult to jump from such different styles of projects from one thing to another, changing genres, changing worlds that you're working in and 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 slipping from one to the other and target audiences as well?
2: It can be really tough to do that sort of gear change in your head. Um, When I first started out um, as a full-time writer, I think I would do things that I'd say, right, so I'll work for an hour on this and then I'll switch and do something. And I can't do that because you have to write, as you know, you have to write into things and you have to sort of get that sort of pick up speed and literally there's some of the gear changes between writing a two page slapstick filled banana man strip for the Bino, which I loved your description of. Um, <laughs> and then going to Warhammer, you know, I mean, that's quite a big shift. Um, I do it and it's a simple trick really. I do it by listening to a piece of music before I move into a new project. Ah. Uh, project. It's not necessarily the piece of music that's connected through to, um, the show I'm writing for, or whatever. Doctor Who's an easy one. I play the Doctor Who thing. Da da, you're there. Um, but there are things <laughs> like um, Blake Seven. Um, I don't actually listen to any Blake Seven music, but I listen to the Alien soundtrack. Because for me, the Alien soundtrack is that sort of like dirty spaceships in space, dark corridors, not a very nice world to find yourself, which for me is what Blake Seven is. So. I do things like that. So yeah, and then I'll, I'll play a bit of lighthearted comedy music. If I'm writing a kid's comedy thing or a nice bit of adventure uh, music, if I'm writing Skylanders. So um, those kind of things, it's almost cleanses my palate a bit and goes, right, hang on a minute. I'm not in that world anymore. I'm now doing this.
0: That's interesting. We, we had uh, Delilah Dawson on the show recently and she does the same thing. She actually builds playlists, of music to play while she's writing in her different worlds and different environments and and that's interesting that 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 visceral sort of sort of primal emotional connection that music evokes can be used as a touchstone to get you into that headspace for writing those different environments
2: exactly i can't have music on when i'm writing but um, it's, it's just, it's before. It's just the, you know, the, it's looking at the blank screen and going, right, where am I? What world am I on? What time am I in? Who, as you say, who's my audience? Because, you know, that's a major part of it. Especially when you're writing for audiences, um, something like The Beano, which is very UK-based, very very British sense of humour. Um, and then you have to switch, and I, I write Adventure Time comics as well. So, you know, that's a completely different um, market even though skylanders it's skylanders as well then skylanders yeah i mean it's all kids fiction but it's it's very you know it's it's a different markets a different tone so yeah music is a real key to to switching from one to another for me it used to be when I, I was a journalist, we quite often had the radio playing, and I'd find myself writing the lyrics of the songs um, <laughs> in the articles, and so you could see what I was listening to, depending on what article you were you were reading back. So, um, so no, actually, when I write, it's a complete. So I plot with music on, um, I brainstorm with music on, but the actual writing, I, I have to have. I, I would say silence, but I've got a house with two small children in it. So it's not complete silence. But <laughs> Silence uh, is
0: not a part of your
2: modality at this point. <laughs> no, exactly. But, you know, as much silence as I can manage when I'm actually having to sort of bash it out on a keyboard.
0: Well, Noise cancelling headphones. Those have them. been a lifesaver for me. They're brilliant, aren't they? Yeah. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Kevin Scott after this brief promotional break.
1: The Terran Empire is dead. Long live the Empire! Commander Jared Mertz, the bastard son of the Emperor, and his half-sister, Princess Kelsey, barely speak to one another. To their dismay, their father seizes an opportunity to change that and sends them on a dangerous quest to explore the fallen Empire. Separated from home by an impassable gulf and struggling to redefine their relationship, they find themselves thrust into a vicious war. Unless they work together to stop the Empire's deadly legacy, billions face a horrific fate. Empire of Bones, written by Terry Mixon. Now available at Amazon.com.
0: Now let's get back to the conversation with Kevin Scott. Well, building on, on Terry's question, you know, as as Terry observed, you are focusing, telling tales to to small children of diverse cultures. Uh, uh, you're diving into the very grim and gritty world of, of both Blake Seven and uh, Black Library, Warhammer 40K, uh, uh, and then Doctor Who and, and all of these other properties. So I I'm curious. And and let's let's go thirty thousand foot with this. Why why do you write, Kevin? Uh, uh, and and I know you've you've said because <laughs> you you don't know what else you would do, and I totally get that. But there there's the impulse for me is that there's a. There's a desire. There's there's not an agenda, but an objective. There's there's something that that feeds you when you sit down to write a story, whatever the story is. And obviously you, you get your food from a lot of different sources. So so what is it about writing that that has driven you to to such diverse lengths?
2: I think well, you mentioned desire and that, and that I think is really important. It's a desire for. I suppose to communicate, um, you know, I, I, was a journalist before I started writing prose and started to write audio. Um, and obviously being a journalist is all about communicating, communicating ideas, communicating, um, other people's ideas, you know, um, ex- interviewing, um, and the like. And I think that's still, it's still the excitement of knowing that something I produce will go out to someone. And I've got no control of who that goes out to, and I don't know who they are. Um, but uh, I think uh, I think a lot of authors feel this as well. That moment when you have a new book day, or a new comic day, or a new audio day, mm-hmm. and you know that someone's going to be listening or reading what you've done, um, and they'll be taking it. And it, you saw, mentioned earlier on about giving up control. I think it's that thing of, yeah, I actually quite like that. You know, it, it's out there, and and they might get something completely different out of it. Um, and in the work I do with children and the work I do in schools, it's that thing of going, you know, if I can write something, and i can um spark something in the person who's reading it whether that's interest if it's an article for a magazine whether it's inspiration to go and do something of their own and that's what i really like um about so i like about doctor who doctor who's a series that inspires people to create and it always has from fanzines through to fan fiction where a lot of us started it's, yeah. there's something about that show i think it's because it always looked quite dodgy that we thought we could do that you know it, it's not <laughs> the slickest show in the world but it's brilliantly imaginative and so it, it sort of sparked that off and so I love knowing that some of my work might encourage people to do something of their own and I th- so I think that's why I write and I think I actually th- do know what I'd be doing I think I would be teaching um, if I didn't write I and can I think see that totally a, a lot of a lot of writers teach and I think it's again it's part of our urge and our our need Without trying to sound too pretentious, but you know, to 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 actually go here, here's some stuff I've done. Here's some stuff I've thought about. Here's stuff other people have thought about that you should be thinking about, or you know. And so I think I think that's the need behind it all.
0: It really is a, a unique opportunity to make a connection mm. that, that, that very few people can make to a very broad range of individual. I think I think you know, as as many introverts as you find in in the writerly craft, uh, I think I think there's a fundamental desire for community and and to mm. reach out and connect and maybe maybe books make it a, a safer way to do that yeah uh, that I don't necessarily have to be in the same room with them but I can still get my thoughts and ideas into someone else's head and then they can do something with it and so on
2: I think it's the, it's the chain I like the chain of the you do something that someone else reads and then they might do something else and they'll pass it to someone else and I, I love that
0: yeah
1: very much so I was going to ask about working in Other people's properties, that's got to be a really odd experience working in Doctor Who that has such a rich, long history. You're lucky to have been involved with it from such a young age, because I can imagine there's all kinds of things you could try to write and find. Oh, back 30 years ago, we already covered that. (laughs) Damn it.
2: (laughs) Oh, and it happens. It still happens to this day. I mean, you know, Doctor Who has now got 50 years plus legacy. Yeah. um, And not just the TV show books comics audios radio dramas plays you know musicals there's all that so actually it's very rare that you come up with an idea and you get and goes that's an amazing original doctor who idea that no (laughs) one's ever thought about um and you do sort of see themes come in i mean the 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 cliche people say about Doctor Who is that be- it's it's a limitless format. You know, he can go anywhere, he can go literally anywhere, any time, any place. So uh, you, you're not that limited in the fact. You know, you can push him somewhere that you know he hasn't necessarily been before. But yeah, it does. You do have those moments, I and mean, there's so many times where you're pitching something that someone else is pitching at exactly the same time. That has happened on so many occasions. Wow. Yeah. You, know, you you get very excited about a storyline, um, and you put all you know your heart and soul into it, you send it off and you go that's lovely. In fact, it's so lovely that um, Paul Cornell doing that over in the books.
0: <laughs> which is which going to be at least a little uh, gratifying that you're on the same wavelength as Paul Cornell. Exactly. You know, so you,
2: <laughs> you do sit there and you go, oh, don't you just love them, the other people? But, um, but you know, you're all part of the same hive mind and, and you, you sort of get it. But, um, yeah, it, it is. And it. Doctor Who obviously has that history. It happens with everything, though, you know, and it, it, it's happened with Skyland as well. The I think the second book um, plot I came up with for the series, they said that's brilliant because that's the, the plot of game three. Um, <laughs> so, But that was really, you know, at least that showed that I was probably thinking in the right direction. That's right. So, You're in the
0: right mindset. You
2: yeah, but, you know, but that's part of the joy of working with a uh, another another property. And, and I mean, th- there are shorthands involved when you're working in Thai fiction. You haven't got to sit there and create the, you know, spend ages world building because the world has been built. Um, hopefully, you you hope that you can add to that world. Um, but it means you can get straight to the nitty gritty of a story because you've, you've got that, you know, you've, the walls are already set around you. Um, you're just working within them. So, yeah, it, it, there is frustrations when you, you you suddenly think, oh God, what kind of story can I tell? But um, usually you get your way around. And of course, the, the way to do it is to subvert if you come up with an idea and someone said well that's happened before you go well how can I change it again with Roger the Dodger the character I write for um for the beano um, my dear American friends Roger the Dodger is a, a boy who hates hard work so much he'll come up with these most intricate scams and and dodges <laughs> that actually take him far more effort to do um, but he's been about 60 years of uh, uh, you know a a strip Two page strip every week for 60 years. You know, that's a lot of scams and a lot of documents. <laughs> so there are, there are moments when I, I do double up on stuff that my, you know, my predecessors have done. But one of the classic Roger the Dodgers is saying that, you know, he, he, um, stays in bed sick so he gets out doing something so then i say fine he stay, you know he quite often dodges to stay in bed when he doesn't want to go to school or whatever what if he's actually ill and wants to go somewhere and so has to dodge himself out of bed (laughs) so that's the kind of thing you do you have to go yeah those stories have happened time and time again um how do we change it how do we Flip it on its head, and that's when you get your original stories. So like
0: you're dealing with such such long-standing properties that they have, they've developed their own tropes. Oh, yes, so, gotcha, definitely. So, so yeah. you go in as as the writer, and you're trying to subvert those tropes and invert them in some way.
2: Yeah, exactly, and while still remaining loyal. Because you have an immense duty when you deal with these characters. These are characters that people absolutely love and adore. Um, And they'll pick up whatever it is, a comic, and listen to an audio, um, read a book based on it, and they want to feel that they know what's going on. They they don't always want to feel that they're they're telling the same old story or retelling the same old story. You can definitely push Mm -hmm. the boundaries of what you're doing with the characters, but it still has to feel like... Doctor Who, like Joe Stredd, like Warhammer, like Roger the Dodger, you know, it, it's got to be within that world. Well, and if you get that wrong, you would let them down as well.
0: Let's talk about that for a second, because as you as you do properties like Highlander or Doctor Who or, or anything that has, you know, even Blake Seven, there's 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 a legacy there. There's a voice. Mm. That uh, the characters have that the stories have and the stories you can probably play with and evolve because the culture that's consuming them evolves as well. But the the characters themselves, uh, uh, I would imagine that any Doctor Who fan, if, if you don't hit all the right notes in his dialogue, in, in in his choices in a story, they'll call you on it real quick.
2: Oh, absolutely. So, and the actors will as well. Yeah,
0: so how do you cultivate that? How what, what do you do as a writer, Kevin, to ensure authenticity in an established character's voice? And I would imagine the same thing happens in, in your original created characters as well. How do you go through that process?
2: I mean, it's literally a case of immersing yourself in the world and you know you sometimes you can't have so much time in it i'm lucky with doctor who i've immersed my entire life in it
0: so. <laughs> Your bachelor party for that matter yeah, yeah yes
2: well yeah, let's not talk about that too much <laughs> um, it was Dalek. it was a really good episode um anyway <laughs> um you know uh, recently working on the the ninth doctor comic strip um it's just been a case of going back and watching episodes, and rewatching them, and rewatching the rewatch, and listening to how Christopher Eccleston says a line. Um, and it sounds very, very basic, but that's the way you do it. And you start picking up the the, the length of his sentences. You start picking up the the, the you know. Obviously, he has a northern British accent, so you start working out how he, he sort of says, structures his senses and it's as basic as that. And it, what the joy actually of the Ninth Doctor comic is that I've got three main characters. I've got the Ninth Doctor with a, a northern and British accent. I've got Rose Tyler, who's a sort of very she's the the audience window into the into the world. She's a you know a nineteen year old girl um, who's from London, and you've got Captain Jack Hartness, played by John Barrowman, who's just sort of qu- quit talking. Talking, um, American con man so you've got brilliant dialogue there b- automatically <laughs> because you've got three very distinct voices but you have to get them right so you go through and you listen and and while you're doing that you just by osmosis pick up what the characters are like because you're listening so intently to the voice that you start to realize how they're going to react to the next sentence because you've listened to them so much um, it's, it's it's homework it's, it's absolutely homework. it's research I, I i was a journalist um I, you know research was my job i've taken it into my writing especially when you're doing tie-in but the interesting thing i think the tip i always give people who start starting out is don't do the Wikipedia version of the character. You know, it's, again, with The Ninth Doctor, he's, you know, he's a bit more gruff. He's a bit more, you know, angry. He's angry at the human race. He's angry at everyone. But actually, watch him, and he's not that angry all the time. He has these moments, these wonderful moments of righteous anger at the universe, but he also has the silliest grin in in the world and a really silly sense of humour, which gets lost if you just do those sort of, you know, those moments um, when you just go, oh, yeah, that's the the two lines description of the character right. um, and of course that relates through to when you're writing your own characters you know you don't you, you have your two liner you know you have the person he, he's this kind of character she's that kind of character but none of us are, are like that all the time and it's, it's remembering that obviously we're different people to different People all the time, you know, so we changed who we're with, we change what situations we're, we're in. So we just try and remember that.
0: People, people are symphonies, not ditties. Exactly. Uh, there's a lot of notes to them. We're running out of time, but I'm, I'm going to turn the mic back over to Terry Mixon for one last question. Terry, you got anything else for Kevin?
1: When you're working on your own fiction, you've you've done so much time working in other people's worlds. Is it hard to transition back to something that is solely your own, where you have complete creative control from beginning to end?
0: uh it's
2: it can be a bit scary because i don't have that sandpit that someone else has already put together um but it's also very freeing as well you know i don't i can't see a point in my career when i don't work in some way in someone else's universe i love it so much and i also think for the people i want to work with especially with children it's very important for them especially kids who don't want to read very much you know they'll pick up a book about angry birds but they won't pick up a book you know about something they don't know so i think that's important but when you get round to writing something um i write a lot of books for reluctant readers in my own own universes and my own worlds um yeah i mean it's free and it it, it it gives me the chance to say you know oh they won't let me do that in in doctor who they won't let me do that in warhammer but you know hey this is my world now <laughs> These are my rules. Um and I love that. And it, it, it's it's almost like having a little holiday away from from one part of my job. Um but a lot of the lessons that I pick up in in doing tie in fiction and tie in work, obviously then play out. In my own work, and and as you said, you know, it's the voices as well. I mean, voices for me are very important because of my background in audio and comics. Mm. Um, dialogue is very important. So quite often, when I'm writing before I've done anything about a character, I'll write a speech for them uh, and I'll write it as a script. Um, so there's no there's no description. Um, it's written very much as a script, and and through dialogue, characters surprise me time and time and time again um, because they end up being from parts of the world that I never knew they did because. They they use. Uh, I wrote something recently, and I was writing a character, a female character, a young girl about eighteen, um, and suddenly realised she was speaking with a Welsh accent or Welsh, <laughs> using Welsh dialect. And I hadn't mean meant to. It's just I used a phrase which I must have picked up somewhere from one of my friends um, from from Wales. And I said, went, "Oh, hang on, she's Welsh. Oh, that's interesting."
0: Um, <laughs> and that defines. And that defines a whole new level of the character.
2: Well, it suddenly I went, well, she's from Wales. What part of Wales is she from? Oh, she's from the valleys. Okay. So how, how has she moved from that place to this place? And suddenly it, the character becomes three dimensional because the backstory almost wrote itself. Um, and I knew exactly where she was because she wasn't in Wales in the story and she, she wasn't in, you know, it, it would not been, um, the, the, the path that would lead led her there would actually be completely different to what I originally imagined. So <laughs> starting with dialogue and, and working out the, the, the tricks in the dialogue and the, the, the kind of words they're using and the vocabulary they're using and the way they're talking and the way they react to people. That for me is the way I start with characters now.
0: That's fascinating, because because so much so many writers, myself included, you know, I've got this little character background worksheet that that fills in all of the details. It never occurred to me to actually have the character, you know, write the character describing themselves or, or speaking to you in their own voice and letting that be the the infusion of 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 essence and diversity and authenticity in a character. That's outstanding. I love
2: that. And you still need to do all that. You know, you still yeah, need yeah, to yeah. work out the background, but it, it, it's a good starting point. It's a springboard. It doesn't always work, but most of the time it does because then suddenly you you, you you get to then play with other tropes. You get to play with stereotypes. So, you know, again, if I put them in a, in a very, from a very specific location and you sort of go, what's this stereotypical background of that person and they, those people? And then you can flip that. And then that, again, you, so you're doing all those tricks again. Um, yeah. yeah. And I find it really useful.
1: Well, I got to say that I'm the opposite of Dave because I start, I don't do a character background. I have a very brief idea of who this character is. And when I start writing about them, that's when they come to life. And I have to go back and edit the first part to to make them reflect who they really are, because I don't know when I start. Oh, it's always a journey. That.
2: Yeah, I'm writing a, a um, YA novel of my own at the minute um, it's sort of an ongoing project I've got bubbling in under everything else and one of the lead characters is completely different to what I imagined him to be because he's really sarky he's really sarcastic and he, he never was meant to be he was actually supposed to be quite noble and, and he's, he's, he's flipped over on everything because actually when he started replying to people he was really sarcastic and he was really <laughs> sneery and suddenly I had to reach a, go back and change his motivation for some stuff because actually no one liked him after a while and he was supposed to be a real, you know, a real nice guy. And I was going, no, he, he won't shut up. And he just talks all the time now. I don't know where I get that from. And and it's just, yeah. And it's, um, and it's completely because when I was writing his dialogue, he was just being really, really horrible to other people just naturally um so yeah i i can totally see how that happens and you have to go back and go the rethink and you get quite annoyed you go really do you have to have a character of your own come on you're my creation (laughs) and again that's part of giving up control when you're writing and you're writing for characters you give up control because they start to um, lead their own lives, and that's brilliant.
0: Even the most dyed-in-the-wool outliner will will be shocked and surprised by their characters in some point in time. Gentlemen, I'm, I'm sitting here, and the clock has actually sprouted a plunger <laughs> and is shouting exterminate, exterminate at me, so I, I can only assume that as much as it pains me, uh, we have run out of time. Uh, uh, so, so, Kevin, Scott, sir, thank you so much for joining us. This has been enlightening and inspiring, and we really appreciate it you're welcome terry what are you taking away from this there's a lot of there's a lot of writerly goodness in in that last 20 ish minutes of conversation what's your what's your takeaway from this one
1: well there's a lot to pull out of that but i'm I gonna know. go ahead and latch on the thing that's most important to me and that character is everything
0: yeah and there's so many different ways to find and discover character and and i think we found a new one today and that's awesome finding a new tool for your toolkit is fabulous I, I'm having a hard time I'm I'm the soft squishy guy so so while I agree it's hard to find one thing uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna hold up that that revelation at least for me of of the nature of of writing as uh, as a community tool as a communication tool uh, a, a way to reach out and connect with more people than you possibly could in your own day-to-day existence and and the the joy and the discovery and and the excitement even the the subversive nature of that discussion, uh, uh, it's not possible in, in many other fields. And I find that fascinating. And I, I'm not sure what I'm going to do with that, but that's where it is. So friends, thank you so much for tuning in. Always glad to have you here at the RTP. Uh, now here's the deal you guys hang out for seven days and I know that's a long time but hang out for seven days and when we come back in seven days we're going to have Kevin back and we're going to sit down and we're going to have a kick-ass brainstorming session with this this gentleman a courageous guest writer Terry and myself we'll be back and we're going to we're going to do a search for literary gold. But that's, that's whoa, that's seven days away, and I know that's a long time. Terry, well, what should our listeners be doing in the next seven days, do you think? writing duh duh absolutely go write the The legacy of Brian Humphrey lives on and dear friends I will tell you as I always do you find what you're looking for so in the next seven days you go looking for the good stuff look for look for the bright package the, the the blue label stuff at the top of the shelf and if you look for it I promise you you will find it we will be back in just seven days until then you guys stay cool be frothy be awesome and we will talk to you soon Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This episode is copyright 2014 by The Roundtable Podcast and released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown Gary Gold, David Labroyer, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at writerspodcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.